Welcome back to the Next Frontier podcast, specifically to the Where Stuff Comes From series. On this episode of the Where Stuff Comes From podcast, we sit down with Shelly Huff to gain a frontline perspective on the global trends shifting the United States away from global, aka China-centric, supply chains, aka stuff chains, and back towards onshore and United States-focused manufacturing. Shelly Huff is a senior retail and supply chain executive with over 15 years experience leading retail businesses, consulting with small businesses and startups, and serving on retail education boards. She is known for her passion for consumers and emerging trends in digital integration, building and leading high-performance teams and delivering financial results. She currently serves as the Chief Operating Officer for Serta Simmons Betting, where she leads the direct-to-consumer business, digital marketing, manufacturing, sourcing, and supply chain for all of Serta Simmons' portfolio of brands. Prior to joining Serta Simmons Betting, Shelly spent most of her career at Walmart as a global officer. In her tenure at Walmart, Shelly held various leadership roles, including Vice President of Housewares for Walmart's U.S. Division, Vice President of Operations for Walmart's e-commerce division, and as CEO of Hayneedle.com, a Walmart company. It's evident that Shelly is intimately familiar with the rapidly changing and evolving stuff chain, supply chain, retail, e-commerce, digital marketing, and direct-to-consumer landscape. She spent her whole career here. And in this episode, I'm so appreciative that Shelly gives us the inside scoop on what's going on and how she views the shift away from global supply chains back towards local and exponential supply chains. So strap in, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Shelly Huff. Shelly, it's wonderful to finally have you on the podcast. Uh, we've been talking back and forth about doing this, and I am so happy that we're finally able to have you. Since we last spoke, there has been a lot of craziness that's unfolded in the world. So how are you doing, and how is Tough to Needle, Tough and Needle doing, and Serta Simmons? And tell me a little bit about what's been going on. Sure. Well, thanks, Max. I'm super excited to have this conversation with you. Um, I always enjoy learning from you um, as you, you're, you've got your, uh, your focus on the front lines of what's happening from a supply chain perspective, certainly. Um, I think it's been a few months since we chatted and, um, and definitely, um, I think in some cases, um, parts of our U.S. supply chain are getting better. And in other cases, um, there's new um, and evolving, um, obviously, circumstances that are, that are making business challenging. I would say that um, in our company, I feel like we've, you know, been able to stabilize several, several parts of how we operate. Um, but there's many things, there are many things on the horizon that we're gonna, we're gonna, um, you know, have to tackle over the next couple of years. So, um, so in general, I would say, and I know we'll get into a lot of this, I would say that I am probably in a better place than when we talked a few months ago, um, based on where some of our solutioning is, but um, a lot of work to do ahead. Thank you for that. And I know that I have this questions list from from when, way back when we when we first spoke, and it is still very relevant. Um, so I guess on this on this conversation, I'm looking forward to number one, understanding a little bit more of your background, and you come into this supply chain chaos that we're facing right now as a larger business community and as every individual. I mean, I, every single one of my friends who I ask about shortages, they've all had three or four shortages that have impacted their ability to access, whether it be a luxury good or some sort of food item or even medications and whatnot. Um, but you have a very unique experience at coming into the supply chain disruptions that we're seeing right now. You've worked at Walmart. Um, I, I'll let you give a little bit of your own of your own background too, and so everyone can have a full picture of, of where you are. But but your experiences at Walmart in particular are very interesting because you were kind of at the the precipice and the center of some of the supply chain changes that we're seeing, moving from you know old school mom and pop shops and maybe some larger supermarkets in, in local areas kind of doing their own sourcing, figuring out how to get their products to these big behemoth organizations doing unimaginably complex sourcing operations like a Walmart where they have, I don't know, how many SKUs does Walmart have? I think in a, in a store, it's something like half a million SKUs or something. Holy in crap. A single, so, in a single store. So it's crazy. Like how many items do they sell online? It's obviously millions, right? And then there's different 
permutations and combinations based on localization and different things like that that um, that obviously make that even and it's the the number of SKUs that they replenish in the U.S. just astronomical. So that is mind-boggling, and I want to I want to understand some of that experiences and your unique perspective. So I'll leave an open-ended question. Could you give us your perspective prior to Serta Simmons using what you learned at Walmart and whatnot? What's going on right now in the supply chains? Before you do that, though, what did you do at Walmart, and how does how is that relevant to this conversation? Sure. So I spent the majority of my career before Serta Simmons at Walmart, and um, I was a merchant, um, which essentially means you run a PL for Walmart. And I my first job um, there was managing a it was around an eighty to hundred million dollar category of plant food, and I spent time at at like chicken fertilizer manufacturers and different things like that for them. Um, but you know, Walmart back then when I joined, um, it and it always has been a really cost conscious company, right? So um, so you got a real job as soon as you joined, and and at that point we hadn't fully built out the cross-functional nature of, of, of merchandising for you, you know, you were on all your own sourcing trips if you were importing from overseas. So I think the first time I went to, to on a buying trip to China was in 2006, which is a definitely a different China than it is today. Um, and, um, and so spent the majority of my career in merchandising, um, leading uh, merchant teams, product development teams, sourcing teams, and really building businesses for Walmart. So in 2000, let's see, 2015, end of 2015, um, I moved from Walmart's uh, brick and mortar operation into their e-commerce operation. So um, at that point was helping build out their digital capabilities and all the same things that impact you in a, in a store from item availability and how we ship to consumers and how we serve consumers, um, you know, different solutions to the same initiatives. Um, and then, you know, my last role with Walmart was the president of um, Heyneedle.com, which is a, a, a direct-to-consumer home furnishing company where I really learned about direct-to-consumer. So, um, so that's a little bit about my background, um, certainly with Walmart. Coming into sort of Simmons, I obviously came in uh, during COVID, started the company during COVID. So I just met some of my co-workers for the first time in person um, a couple of weeks ago after working with them for 14 or 15 months, which is really strange because you're used to seeing people on a screen and then all of a sudden they're 3D and, and you get to just stare at someone, you know, in, in three-dimensional terms, which is super interesting, but, um, but it was a lot of fun. So I joined this company during COVID and I think, you know, like at most manufacturing companies across the business, whether you are a retailer, or whether you're a manufacturer, we experienced you know, an entire disruption um, from a supply chain perspective. So some industries demand just dropped off where people didn't need those items anymore. And in others, like the home furnishing business where I've worked, you know, again, most of my career um, just completely exploded, right? We were all at home. We needed anything from artwork to sit behind our Zoom screens to more comfortable chairs to, you know, if you're spending a lot of time in this space, many people grew gardens within their homes or um, <clears throat> or other things. And so, you know, it cre created this, as we well know, this bullwhip effect where um, we're based on just the volatility and instability of supply chains. Um, we are now completely disrupted and out of, of a lot of not only raw materials, but, um, but items in general that we can serve the market. So, um, you know, what I'm seeing now is um, is disruption across every facet of how we operate. So it's from containers to logistics to labor to raw materials to um, to you know um, you know just the entire logistics network of ingesting goods across even um, even different networks. And so um, so it's been it, it's been interesting, Max. I think. Um, my background has certainly been um, an asset in terms of understanding uh, supply chain complexity. I think, um, I think though, we're faced with um, dilemmas that, you know, whether you've been in this industry for five years or whether you've been in it 25 years, you're facing new dilemmas um, every day. This is certainly unprecedented. I know that word's been overused, but, um, but certainly it, it, it requires a different, um, a different type of thinking to solve some of these problems. Cool. So I want to get into direct-to-consumer later in the conversation, and I want to get into just-in-time manufacturing later in the conversation, which you kind of alluded to both those 
um, in your in your overview of what's happening. Direct to consumer, because I think that it's an excellent way for companies to cut quote unquote muda and waste and eliminate some of the distribution nodes, extra trucking, extra logistics, et cetera, that happen when you have to go through the distributors and whatnot. Um, and then just in time, because we've had some conversations about how that's really been a driver of some of the issues in the supply chains. But first, I want to learn more about, and I know that my audience wants to learn more about how the heck do you think about sourcing and supply chaining for, you said, a couple of million SKUs that Walmart was supplying? Um, what, is that, what does that even look like? How does a company like that go from raw materials and at a high, as high, as high a level as you need to go here, but how does a company like that go from raw materials in the ground or on a, on a, on a cornfield or a cotton field to product on the shelves and or keep that all organized, keep it reliable and keep it resilient? Sure. I think that that, I mean, we could spend several hours talking about this. And I think, you know, without being specific to Walmart, I, I'll just describe a, a large supply chain that commonalities that could apply to, to many different companies. Um, I heard this analogy once, and I think it's really great at explaining how complex supply chains become the way they are and really reliable supply chains. Certainly like a Target or a Walmart would have is they didn't happen overnight. They happened gradually as the company grew. And um, and so Walmart has the benefit of um, obviously the biggest consumer base in the United States, biggest company in the world operating globally. Um, so they have a footprint um, in, you know, I think it's over 25 countries across the world um, in global sourcing operations. And almost every cu- country they have explored global sourcing operations. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because um, Walmart invested in systems very early enabling it to get a tremendous amount of data, right? And there's been books written about this um, where everything is connected from you're able to connect the velocity of the item. You're able to break down the raw materials included in the item. Um, You know, people are using Bloomberg terminals to track the commodity prices across the world to ensure that, you know, Walmart's getting the best pricing. And then they've hired the best talent. Their global sourcing division is just absolutely, you know, phenomenal. And they're really boots on the ground in every country. For instance, you know, in China, there were several hundred people working in that office in Shenzhen um, across different business units that are really in the factories, developing new strategic relationships, um, developing the sourcing matrix of the future. And so it's a combination because a company like Walmart, who's so cost-driven, right, they, they look for suppliers that over decades have built the capabilities to serve the large quantities that um, that they need in order to serve their customers. I mean, as you can imagine, in some apparel items, they'll sell 30 million units of an item in a year of one item. You have to have a supplier in place that can actually manufacture that and ship you on time of an item. It's a huge operation. At the same time, because there are so many different changes across not only Asia, but the world... Walmart has and other companies have a very good view of experimental relationships and strategic relationships and taking a look at how you diversify different things. If this happens, then we do this. So the contingency planning and the strategy around the partnerships with the countries in which it operates, as well as you know um, what it actually manufactures and how that gets done, um, is is quite complex and and built out over time. Um, one of the things that I think is most impressive is just the values and ethics that they've built in over time around uh, around how they operate and how they go to market in these areas. Um, I think that when you look at you know the supply chain of the past, when we've talked about you know just in time or single source, um, you know companies that have strategically thought about contingency planning um, and thought about scenarios like if a global pandemic hits, then what happens? We're much better positioned, right? Going into this year um, than many others who did not anticipate um, the severity of the supply chain disruption that we have. So um, so at scale, I I can't even, uh, you know, describe the uh, the global operation, um, you know, that exists with a Target or a Walmart, um, thousands of people involved, the best in the industry, um, making that happen. Um, very impressive. But it's almost like when you plan, you know, we would plan this annual 
annual event every year where thousands of people would fly into to Arkansas for a shareholders meeting and you've got to book hotels and all these logistics. And I heard someone um, once say, because it was just, it's so impressive, you know, that whole week and how they do it. And um, I happened to ask the person that um, that did it. I said, how did you get a team to pull this off? This thing is just massive every year. And he goes, well, I mean, I've been here a really long time. And Shelly, it started with like 100 people. And then the next year we had 110. And then the next year we had 120. So, and then we built to thousands, right? And that's kind of how um, how you see a supply chain like that develop over time. It's like, yeah, it, at one point there were five stores and then there were 100 and then there were... A thousand, and then there were five thousand, and so you can imagine over time just the network that's been able to be developed as a result of that. Okay, so you said something interesting, and I'm I'm harping on it for a specific reason. You said that a company like Walmart might end up having folks at Bloomberg terminals tracking commodities. Does Walmart go all the way down the supply chain to cotton fields in name a, name a location, or to mines in the Congo, or to um, oil wells in in you know South Texas, is that is that the the level of detail that Walmart sourcing team? If you can't share specifics, then that's totally fine. But at complex organizations like this, are they going down that far and developing suppliers all the way down the supply chain? And maybe you could also define supplier development and kind of how that works and how Walmart might work with the ecosystem. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think that they've they've published you know this information. And certainly, when you look at you know some of their documentation around environmental sustainability, you see a lot around sourcing and sustainable sourcing and cotton and things like that. Um, yeah, I think at one point, you know, um, probably in two thousand seven is when Walmart I think had a joint venture buying its own organic cotton fields to to manufacture apparel. Um, they definitely track down to the raw material level um, and the and the um, and the um, yeah all the components that go into an item. And I think they um, Walmart because it's so big and as you can imagine has so much of a responsibility in how it operates across multiple different countries. Um, they have to have a full transparency into their supply chain, right? Because they don't ever want to get surprised if somebody is using something that they shouldn't be using or you know, um, or uh, outsourcing, you know, their agreement with Walmart. Um, so they they get pretty into the details about uh, in terms of how they operate and they should, they've got a lot of responsibility and they, you know, take the steps needed to ensure that they have as much transparency as possible. And and when it comes to something like supplier development, if let's, we have a lot of SMBs who listen to this show, if they are an SMB, how can they, you know, more... I want to say leverage, and I think that this might even be an kind of an old world question, you know, pre pre pandemic question. But how would an SMB work with a Walmart on their end to to get Walmart what they need and help help get their products into Walmart or help that get their raw cotton to Walmart, etc.? Is it is it a two way relationship that's being facilitated, or is Walmart kind of putting out a an RFQ and small businesses are bidding on it and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, I, there's multiple ways that Walmart meets people, right? They have a supplier development office. Um, they also have, you're able to submit items, I believe, on walmart.com to even be considered. And they have, you know, and it goes directly to the buyer. Um, they also have, if you just want to start selling your item, getting traction, you they have a marketplace that you can get on walmart.com, right? Um, and start and start um, learning, you know, whether the item, you know, should be sold in a bigger way. Um, lot, a lot more data available. Um, and then, you know, one of the things that they do is once a year, they hold a Made in USA Summit where they invite any American manufacturer that wants a meeting with a buyer in and they do a summit. So if you're a Made in USA manufacturer, they'll meet with you and you come in and you meet face-to-face with the buyer and you're invited to the summit. And um, there's so many great stories about um, about people who have gone and sold. I, I remember um, one of the first items we went big on, um, a, a Made in USA team came in with like a taco plate and Walmart bought a million taco plates from them, right? You can imagine that that was just so cool for that company um, in multiple different levels. And so um, so there's there's a lot of interesting ways that you can get in front of Walmart um, and they've, they've really left themselves open to, to serve manufacturers in that way. Oh, and I imagine it's similar at a lot of these massive supply chain organizations and whatnot. Um, so moving away from Walmart, Certus Simmons is a very interesting company from the conversations I've had with you because 
from what I understand, you make a lot of your, your finished goods in the United States, um, which is rare in this market. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what does Serta Simmons do? What does Tough and Needle do? And then we can get into more specific questions. And I also want to figure out, because the name of the podcast is Where Stuff Comes From, where the heck do mattresses come from? <laughs> Perfect. So, uh, so Serta Simmons, um, in general, uh, if they've been, Serta Simmons has been making mattresses for over a hundred years, right? And which is really impressive. And they've been making them in the United States, which is just, uh, fantastic. We have many employees at our company that have been here over 40 years, which is just so fun to see. Um, they acquired Tuft and Needle, uh, in 2018, and that was their, their entry into the direct to consumer business. And so, uh, and so um, I serve as the CEO of Tuft & Needle, as well as the chief operating officer for Serta Simmons. So a little bit about, you know, that relationship is that the teams are really still in it, you know, moving through a digital transformation, building working teams, working together, sharing data and insights. And so it's a really fun time to be at the company. We operate 27 manufacturing facilities across North America. 21 of them have, are in the United States. And um, and then we also have a network of suppliers in um, in the U.S. as well that are making that are manufacturing items for us as well, like mattress in a box. And so um, so our, our mattresses come from the U.S. Um, the raw materials from those, as you can imagine, come from many different places, and we can get into that in terms of what the what the components are. Um, but that's a little bit about the company in general. Um, from a raw material standpoint in terms of where do mattresses come from, right? So mattresses are primarily made up of, I look at it as four things. It's foam, coils, glue, and then whatever fabric casing you're putting it in, right? As simple as that. What about, what about the love? I heard that there's a little bit of love put in there too. <laughs> a little, of as course. cheesy as that sounded. <laughs> love, craftsmanship, just amazing. So, um, so anyway, so that's, um, so that's a bit of where, uh, about what goes into a mattress. So primarily when you look at foam, um, the, the primary raw material that goes into foam is our, our chemicals, right? Um, to, to, in order to make foam. So there's several, um, foam manufacturers, um, foam pores in the United States. Sorry, uh, what, like, what, are, what, what type of foam is it all like poly, polyurethane, polyethylene foam yeah, that comes from like oil derivatives? Yeah, yeah, oil derivatives primarily. So, um, so you there's been articles published on this this year too that when people stop driving and using less fuel, there were fewer oil derivatives, right? And so, so you start getting into what shortages um, in terms of raw materials were really impacting this industry. In terms of coils, there's this really cool company. I'm sure you've heard of it, Leggett and Platt. They're based in Missouri. Um, if you haven't heard of it. Okay, um, so Leggett and Platt is um, is one of the biggest coil manufacturers in the world, and they happen to be in the middle of Missouri. They patented the coil, I think, in the late 1800s, um, and coils are all made out of steel mostly. Um, so when you go visit them, it's actually such an impressive operation that they run there, um, and um, and so you know we source most of our coils from them, as do most. Uh, coil uh, folks that that put coils in mattresses, and then you have glue, and then you have you know um, fabric that that essentially is is the mattress encasement. Uh, those fabrics can come domestically, they can come globally. Some people import them, um, but that's essentially where mattresses come from. Well, I mean, the, the, it's an interesting train of thought because uh, I like I like talking to businesses and learning how some of the larger macro trends are impacting them. Obviously, it's what the whole podcast is about, but oil in particular. Um, one of the last podcasts I had was with a guy named Mark ha- Mike Howard, and we got pretty deep into what's going on with some of the oil. He's a midstream midstream producer, so he, he puts out all the products you know, that come from oil and natural gas that don't go in directly into you know heating homes and whatnot. Um, and we had a long conversation about this and kind of where all, where all that comes from. So I'd refer people back to that episode if they want to go further down the rabbit hole. Um, and coils too. I mean, uh, steel prices are up what two hundred percent this year already, something like this. Um, steel is up. And then glue. What? I, just because I'm very nitpicky. What, where does your glue? How, where does that really come from? What kind of are they from the when it comes out of the ground? Is it is it also oil derivatives or is it you know like rubber derivatives from Thailand or something like this? You know, I I think I don't know. I can't. Okay, that's I okay. Cannot, I cannot tell you where our glue comes. That's okay. I know that there's like different bases in terms of oil bases and and water bases, but I can't I can't go that's that. Okay. I'm, I'm just a nerd. I'm a nerd. 
Okay, cool. Well, well, that's thank that's that's very interesting. And it's cool to boil down mattress, what is actually in it and where does it come from? Okay, so now you're United States based plants. So all these products come in to your US based plants, then what happens? So all these products come into our US based plants. We um we have a high level of personalization in our business. Um and Serta Simmons traditionally is a just-in-time mattress manufacturer, right? So um so prior to the pandemic, it's you know, these core raw materials come into the business and there's different like ticking and things as well to make the mattress design. But essentially we we make these mattresses with relatively short lead times and ship them directly to retailers in most cases. And so um so it's a it's a it's been a, traditionally before the supply chain crisis a very dependable, reliable, just in time manufacturing business. You say just in time. So maybe this is a good point to define define what exactly that means. Right. So just-in-time manufacturing, um, I believe that it came from Toyota operations. So um, so uh, Toyota Japan. And I think, Max, it was uh, early 1900s started using this. And the concept is when you have really great analytics and planning capabilities, you can essentially reduce waste all across your supply chain. And so essentially what that would mean is you become highly predictable and how you forecast and how you plan your business and you continue to g- gain improvement through who you source from and then how you make it and who you sell to. And so it's it's basically a concept of continuous improvement. Um, a lot of people refer to it as lean manufacturing. Um, and essentially um, it, it takes all, all possible... The idea is you take all possible waste out of your supply chain. Cool. So when you, in the context of Serta Simmons, just-in-time means you're, just, you're getting the inventory in from your vendors. And right when that comes in, you have kind of customer custom orders or whatever it might be lined yes. up and you're manufacturing, you're matching, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Exactly. How has that changed with the pandemic? Everything about that has changed due to the pandemic. <laughs> so, um, so again, the core concept of when lean works well is when you have a stable supply chain and everything about most supply chains at this point in time is unstable. So Essentially, um, and this is this is very true when you're driving efficiency in the business. Um, our natural behavior is to simplify every part of the process. So, what that would mean from, and I think it's true for retailers, right? Um, the more people you buy from, the more complexity it adds to your business. And it's the same for manufacturers. The more people you buy from, it adds complexity into your business because then you have to forecast across multiple suppliers. You have to buy from multiple suppliers. You have to ingest, you know, products from multiple suppliers um, across the supply chain. And so, you know, as we became a more lean organization over time to reduce costs and to simplify our business, we, in many cases, sole sourced a lot of our, our goods that go into production. So when you sole source, essentially, and if anyone sole sources, it leaves you very susceptible that if that single source becomes disrupted, you are then disrupted. And and you don't necessarily have alternatives to jump to um, in order to to shore up your supply chain. So um, in those cases, and I think in the mattress industry, I continue to read these articles that are coming out. Um, there's been a tremendous amount of of disruption across the mattress business. Um, you know, anything from uh, shortages of of coils to shortages of foam, um, and essentially that's been uh, tremendously difficult for for a lot of companies to to sustain that. So, what it essentially forces companies to do is solution and contingency plan. And so the 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 catchword of 2021 I think is supply chain resiliency and I think you see that coming through in um in more publicly traded company conversations, you see that coming through in a lot of uh you know uh documentation that you would read or or conversations that that are being published now. It's all about supply chain resiliency and it's all anybody's talking about and essentially what that means is getting really deep into your supply chain in terms of the second source, which you talked about earlier, right? How fast, how far do companies go back? Well, now you have to get back in your supply chain. You actually have to understand who your suppliers are being supplied by and what does that mean in, in terms of building um, safety stock together, right? So just in time is I don't hold any inventory. It comes in, I make it, it goes out. 
Well, now safety stock is a big, important topic, right? You have to be able to store finished goods or you have to be able to store raw materials for the rainy day, right? Um, and um, in our case, you know, one of the things we watch is also, um, you know, it's it's um, the chemical suppliers across the Gulf, right? They're really used to getting through a hurricane. They weren't really used to getting through um, an ice storm that completely like cratered their operations for a few, right? So everybody, even the climate is now causing disruption that companies haven't seen before. So, so essentially um, getting really deep in the supply chain and then understanding what your contingency plans are, if this, then what. Um, safety stock's a big important part of that. So it's revisiting, many companies are revisiting their capital structure. Um, we're now starting to see that warehouse space in the US is going to evaporate, right? Because as you look at companies that are all trying to get ready for holiday, knowing that they can't get containers into the US and there's disruption in Asia and all these things, you have to build out warehouse capacity so that you're ready to go and you have to be able to ingest goods when they get to you. You don't have the luxury of saying, um, oh, well, this is how much warehouse space I have. So here's when I want these goods from you. You just don't have, you, you're not able to do that. So many companies across the country are, are really snapping up open warehouse space. Um, Amazon added 100 warehouses in September alone, which brings them to 250 warehouses that they've added this year. So they're probably in one of the better places in terms of finished goods storage and, and being ready to serve through holiday. But these are really different ways for companies to think about how they manufacture, who they source from, what their capital structure is, what are they doing with raw materials, how much safety stock? What are they doing with finished goods? How much safety stock? And ultimately, still being able to serve a consumer who's who has demand that's still palpably growing in the home furnishings business, right? And across a, a lot of different businesses. And so I think this year has made companies completely rethink lean, um, completely rethink just in time and what it really means to have an efficient supply chain uh, in the future. Wow, that is a phenomenal summary and they ring a lot of light bulbs in my brain. When it comes to, let me let me take a second to consider where I want to start here because I have like three or four, I have three or four <laughs> questions. So it was great. When it, when it comes to, to warehousing space, what are some of the other, other considerations you know, aside from supply availability? One of the things that I, I'm seeing as well throughout the market is kind of very serious inflationary pressures especially when you're dealing with things like steel coils or um, polyurethane foams, which have got, you know, natural gas prices, or I think, at, I think they were at like $35 per BTU in Europe right now, which is freaking insane. They're at $5 in the U S and those, those products are very frequently converted into foam derivatives and whatnot. Um, so what are some of the other considerations in addition to, to the, you know, the, the scarcity piece, um, but from the financial side of things, are there inflation considerations when companies are making some of these warehousing decisions to warehouse steel coils in advance or warehouse foam in advance? Uh, and then there's also the, hey, what's the shelf life of this? Could you talk a little bit about those other considerations? Yeah, of course. So, um, so inflation, yes, is an absolute consideration for everyone right now. And the way I think about it is there's a consumer at the end of this, right? And the consumer, what is the consumer expecting to pay for a certain product that I sell them, right? And so um, so I traditionally have tried to think about inflation as what is the long-term impact, right? If this, if this inflationary pressure is going to only last three to four months, we can probably hedge a little bit to say, right, like the consumer may not get impacted as readily, right? And, and this isn't the first time we've dealt with huge inflationary pressures, right? There've been, you know, dealing with inflationary pressures, you know, uh, you know, I can remember between 2008 and 2010, huge inflationary pressures, right? In, in some product categories that we operated in. Um, but when you do that, you try to think about the timing, right? And what the ultimate impact to your business is going to be. What's the ultimate impact from a consumer perspective? What's the ultimate impact from a trust perspective? Um, so I've tried to think about it in buckets of what is the, what is the life line of the current inflationary pressures from our own materials? What is the lifeline of the current inflationary pressures from a labor standpoint? Now, what is my capital structure need to be to ultimately support safety stock and resiliency? And now, what is the cost of all of that ultimately with, within the constraints of how I operate? And so when I look at it that way, 
I think, um, and I, and I might be wrong, right. We'll listen to this from a year from now and I'll be like, great. Okay. We're like, we're just thinking about this. Right. And I may be wrong, but I think labor is going to be the stickiest part of inflation. I honestly think, think that. And, and I think that when I look long-term, the American worker, um, you know, I, I don't think the American worker is going back, you know, um, to, to, um, how things were a year ago, certainly or a year and a half ago. Um, so basically I, I try to think about what, what inflation do I need to plan for long-term? What's the stickiest, um, in terms of investing in additional warehouse space for resiliency in terms of, you know, warehouse pricing going up, freight is going up across the U.S. Container prices are going up across China. Trailers are at a shortage now in the United States, right? You've got all these things playing into the fact that our cost to serve is going up in almost every area. And so um, so I think you have to have these conversations of what can you bear? What can the consumer bear? We have a tremendous amount of great suppliers that, that are supplier partners in my business that we're working together to understand what that means. So there's a lot of open questions, um, but we try to forecast it and get as much information as possible to make the smartest decision for our consumer and our business. I, a few more questions on your on your previous um, deep dive into just in time. What about just in time still works <clears throat> in this environment? I think, yeah, I think when you get into the um, the plant level right? In the manufacturing level, there's still so many efficiencies and improvements you can have in just day-to-day operations, right? Mattresses is not an automated business. So it's a highly manual business. So when you're in the highly manual businesses, there's always room for improvement. So running, like I am not a black belt by any means. So I'm going to use a lot of black belt words because I hang out with them. Um, and many black, of them black belt are- in jujitsu or black belt in, in lean? Lean. Um, okay. Yeah. Like these people work on my team and I'm just like, it's the adage, right? Like always hire people that are way smarter than you. And I feel like that is the case on my team all the time. Um, so I only know these words because I work with them, but, um, but, you know, running Kaizen improvement events across the business and, and just that focus on continued, uh, continuous improvement. And our plants are all highly entrepreneurial, right? So we get ideas. The best ideas come from the, the, the plant floor in terms of how we improve our business, how we make it more efficient, um, but having folks just boots on the ground, right? Even though it's COVID, like our, I visited all 21 of our plants, our U.S. plants um, a few months ago when, when I moved into the COO role and having like leadership presence and engagement and still working on those improvement efforts and sharing best practices. That part of lean is still, you know, is, is still probably the biggest part that, that everyone is still leveraging, I, I would say across the board, because probably, you know, just based on what's happening in the U.S., we're probably not getting more efficient in terms of, of supply and, and definitely not more efficient from a, from a um, you know, from, from an efficiency perspective uh, that's impacting the cost of our cost to serve. So, yeah, one of the, one of the fallacies that I, that I, I'm fascinated by is the the bias to when something doesn't work and you have a buzzword like just in time and things break because just in time was misused. There's a tendency for number one, the media to say, blame everything on something like just in time. And then for folks who are using that tool who don't necessarily understand how it's supposed to be used to say, oh, I guess this doesn't work and throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I just wanted to um, kind of sh- show that, hey, there might still be some some little tidbits here that work and let's not fall into the fallacy of throwing just in time out with the bathwater. Um, cause it's still, from what I understand, it's a very effective manufacturing process. Um, and will 100%. be for supply chain too, as we fix some of these issues moving forward. Absolutely. So the next thing I wanted to ask you about is everyone's talking about supply chain resiliency. Have you had a chance to read Nassim Tlaib's book, Tlaib's book? I don't know how to pronounce names. Um, um, anti-fragility. I haven't. I'm going to okay. write it down. So I highly recommend it. The title might be slightly different. Again, not so great with uh, with with pronouncing names, remembering book titles. But um, he has a book called Anti Fragility, and the whole concept is what does anti fragile mean? It means it's not it's not it does not mean that it's not fragile and it's strong. Fragile, you drop something, you drop a vase, it breaks. Um, strong, you drop uh, steel weight, it doesn't break. But there are things in the world, for example, your muscles, where if you break your muscle fibers they break, but then they grow back stronger. So that's the concept of anti-fragility. And I'm hearing everyone talk about, and resiliency is not really the same either. Resiliency just means you take some damage and you kind of recover to where you were before. But I don't hear a lot of conversation about how do we make supply chains more anti-fragile where we can make them even stronger. 
the next time that we have a major crisis like this or coming out of this crisis, how do we make them even stronger? It's, it's almost like we're trying to bring supply chains back to where they were and to operate in the same kind of ecosystem that I think we're learning it, learning now was sort of flawed and had a lot of problems underlying it. I'm not hearing a lot of talk about how do we re- totally rethink how we create a ecosystem that can be anti-fragile, that can grow from adversity and chaos and whatnot. So what are the, some of the, I know that you probably have, have some of these thoughts because you are at the cutting edge of what's going on in supply chain and whatnot. So how do you think that our systems can be revamped and reiterated to be anti-fragile rather than just resilient? Right. I think that that's such a great concept and you've made me want to read this book now. So thank you for recommending it. Highly recommend it. Um, so just starting at a high level, crises make us better. They do. And as human beings, we improve and we get smarter and we get more information and we act differently, which I think through this, um, you know, the companies that take a step back, it's been a phenomenal time for you to really learn what you're doing well and where you can improve. And so I think for that, it's also in many cases brought teams closer together. You've had to, right, come together and, and create different solutioning. So I think that that's fantastic. I think what we're seeing is um, when you talk about anti-fragility is really a return to this conversation around localized supply and, um, and what that means in terms of really building blocks that are sustainable for the future that still give you a tremendous amount of speed, but you're essentially working on business development and developing relationships and working differently even with your current suppliers um, to improve things like that. So supply chains were so reliable and predictable in the past that you could essentially get raw materials or items from anywhere in the world with certainty and they could arrive at your doorstep literally through somebody like Amazon. Um, That isn't the case now. So you have to rethink everything. And so part of this anti-fragility concept is actually um, how and where are you getting things for the future? Because that's going to matter. And I think the conversation that I've seen is um, this return to this concept around localization and local sourcing. Um, So, you know, I've seen a lot of, I've seen that work in two areas, right? I've seen um, some Chinese suppliers that that are not shipping as much to the U.S. and kind of pulling back in that area and rethinking their U.S. operations in general. And I've seen others that have said, okay, I actually need a localized presence there. So I'm going to invest in a localized presence. Um, in some areas, we're seeing um, different companies um, build up manufacturing uh, capabilities in Mexico, for instance, that used to be manufactured in Asia, right? There's a tremendous amount of disruption in Asia due to COVID and other other elements there. But really, do you become more efficient when you just get on the same continent um, to manufacture and get closer? So I think that there's a lot of things that are happening that are new and unique solutions that companies haven't quite honestly had to think about in the past that they're now thinking about in terms of the next time something like like this happens, do you have more optionality? To me, that's anti-fragile, right? Is when you increase your level of optionality and you increase your level of resiliency so that like, for instance, with this container situation, you know, we're now paying 23,000 plus for containers coming out of China that we were paying 4,000 for a few months ago. What does that mean in terms of how we think about even resiliency or anti-fragility in terms of your cost structure and what your optionality is with with cost reduction or minimum impact to cost increases that are coming in different parts of your supply chain? So, um, So that's how I think about it. There's probably other ways to think about it. But when I look at resiliency, it doesn't just mean diversification. It means optionality, significant optionality. Um, and efficiencies. And I think we're going to see a lot of different changes happening as a result of that. We could spend a lot more time on the China conversation. I will table that till we have you back on. If you're willing to come back on at some point over the next next months, years, I don't, I don't know. I hope that we have a, a long, fun relationship um, because I think that some of the things you said about China are very interesting. I think there's some security law considerations in China that I've talked about on, on other episodes. Um, and we, we chatted about a little bit and then what's happening in China too now is their factories are not producing. We have factories that, and we're trying to get everything to the United States as quickly as possible, but we just acquired a company and their factories in China that make hoses, right? 
they're not producing right now because there's an energy shortage in China. So not only is there a 60-day delay to get things off the boat once they get to the port of LA, not only are shipping costs ridiculous coming out of China, not only is there a trucking and container shortage in China, but now the factory is not even producing. So the benefits are really shaky. So China's a whole other whole other <laughs> beast that we could get into. Um, and then one of the other localism things that, I, that I've seen is I saw a company who had 3D printing capabilities and the 3D printing a certain plastic component was, I don't know, four or five times more expensive than it would have been total landed to get it from their injection molded or whatever plastic processing supplier that they were doing previously, but their supplier wasn't shipping or they couldn't get it off the, their boat in LA or something. So they had this 3D printing capability. They had you know, a technician and an engineer who know how to use it. So they quickly thought through, okay, what can we do to solve this, this sourcing challenge? And they did a short run on their 3D printer of, of this plastic component. And even though on a per unit basis without, without uh, you know, shipping, because container prices are so much higher now, so I don't even want to consider that because I don't know at what point in time this was, but it was four or five times more expensive. They were still able to ship their larger product. And it was such a small component that it didn't really eat into their into their gross margin for that product. Um, you know, it maybe had a few basis points of, of impact, but that allowed them to ship their product that was dependent on this this one little piece of inventory that they weren't able to get elsewhere. Um, so the localism thing, I think that not only is it on the same continent, but how can you rethink what your capabilities are within your own factory and within your own shop, both in terms of talent and capital, um, exactly. I think is interesting. And technology really enables that too. We're a few years away, aren't we, from each having a 3D printer in our homes, which will be. Oh, I think every, I think we're there. I think <laughs> I, I'm a big advocate for everyone buying a 3D printer. I think yeah. it's such an important piece of like of seriously creating a a much more resilient local supply chain. Because right now, if there's if trucks stop running and your water main breaks, or you have a, you have a, a pipe that breaks, you have no ability to go replace that. If you have a 3D printer, you have some capability to go figure out how to work around the solution to get that fixed on your own at your own home. Um, and it's not super technical either. I mean, you could hire someone online to do the design for you and then hit print on your file and you have it right there as long as you've stocked enough, uh, you know, 3D printer raw materials. But yeah. this is this is for another another time. Very cool. So we are running up on our, on our time together and I really wanted to get into the direct-to-consumer conversation um, for a few minutes before we head off because you have such unique experience and exposure to the direct-to-consumer ecosystem. So like we did with Just-in-Time Manufacturing, could you maybe tell us a little bit about what direct-to-consumer is and elaborate a little bit more on your experiences um, you know, running businesses at scale with complex supply chains that were direct-to-consumer? Sure. So um, direct-to-consumer is essentially exactly what it says. It's when brands are able to sell directly to their, their consumers through their own branded websites, basically. Um, you can look at retailers have always been direct-to-consumer. Even when you were walking into a retail store, if you're buying private label, that was sold directly to you. So, um, so, but more probably what you're leaning into is when brands are selling direct-to-consumer online. Um, uh, my experience with e-commerce, I guess, and, and direct-to-consumer as it relates to supply chain is um, probably one of the biggest changes for me when I moved from a traditional brick and mortar business to an e-commerce business is everything that I thought would be true about the way that supply chain would work is actually counterintuitive. Um, and there's a lot of learnings that come from that, right? Um, when you look at unit economics, for instance, um, that is not something you need to essentially think about in a brick and mortar business. Companies have spent decades essentially perfecting shipping pallet quantities of things across the world at a low price so that by the time it lands on the shelf, of course, you're making money on it. Um, one of my biggest lessons, and I think that this is a funny story, when I went into the e-commerce business and I led home and apparel for walmart.com, I, the, our store business and, and a woman that I knew really well as a counterpart in the store business um, was running a pillow palooza event in the stores, which essentially she bought all these pillows, put them in huge dump bins, lowered the price on a rollback and was going to blow through a ton of pillows. And so as we were like, oh, well, let's make this an omni-channel event, you know, I'll do a pillow palooza online. And one of the executives from Walmart e-commerce who had been in e-commerce for a really long time, I think he started his own book selling company and all of those things. The next day I walked into my office after the pillow palooza online and he had essentially shipped a pillow to himself and put the box on my desk with the unit economics of how much money I lost um, 
on a post-it taped to the box just to say like, hey, like it's a different business, right? And that was such a great learning for me because it was like, okay, we really have to think through what your contribution profit is, right? As a retailer in a brick and mortar environment, you're like, what is my gross margin on something, right? What is my gross margin? What is my maintained margin after I have to mark stuff down? Contribution profit. I mean, you're looking at what you make on an item after you ship it, after you market it, after you do all these things. It's like, are you actually making money on that thing? So we've spent we spent a lot of time and Amazon's brilliant at this, right? Like when you go over to China and you work with the factories that Amazon works with, you even look at things like packaging of a pair of headphones. Like we would have bought a pair of headphones with like cardboard packaging around it um, that added um, a lot of uh, of cube when you're shipping hundreds of thousands of headphones across the water. Amazon just puts them in a little like clear bag. So they squish as low, as small as possible so that they get that efficiency when they're shipping things across that you're going to sell online because it essentially, it everything impacts their contribution profit, right? So it's just a different mindset when you sell things online of the cost structure and how you think have to think about anything from what are you buying? What are you going to charge for it? Does what you charge for it hurdle all of the, of the different things? And the, so you become better at packaging, you become better at shipping, you become better at marketing. All of those things, much harder to make money online, obviously, than, um, than it is to, uh, to sell something in brick and mortar. But those were some of my initial learnings um, going into uh, an e-commerce business in terms of supply chain. This might be a good time to briefly touch on how things actually get to customers. So when it comes to the actual logistics movements of, of these products, I, I'm, I'm pinpointing that this might be where the difference is in, in brick and mortar versus, versus e-commerce and direct to consumer what is the actual difference so you're you're saying you have pallets on trucks pallets can be packaged much differently and move more efficiently on trucks versus when you have individual packages you have to stack boxes that have some sort of packing material etc am i getting right. the, the gist could you could you take the ball yeah. from there and so tell me when, where i'm wrong no you're absolutely right so um so like i said when you go shop at a target basically what happened at that target is they had a bunch of fully loaded trailers that were dropped off full of packets, pallets of merchandise that were unloaded by a store associate and you bought it off of a shelf. That was a very efficient way cost-wise for that retailer to essentially get an item to you. Um, from a direct-to-consumer standpoint, somebody actually had to pick that item out of a warehouse, put it in a box and ship it as far as close as they could to your home. <laughs> And then somebody had to take it the extra mile or two to actually deliver it at your door. So a lot more cost built in that model um, than obviously you walking into the Target. Um, you see a lot of retailers now incenting their customers, come pick it up in store. That's because you save them all that money by you actually going to pick it up versus them paying to deliver it to your home. Amazon, again, I, I they're just world-class, right? In terms of how they do things. I think... I was telling somebody the other day, I'm like, Amazon's going to have a warehouse, I think, outside of every single person's neighborhood, right? Where they're just like picking it out of the warehouse and dropping it off at your door. It's that impressive. I heard now they're putting, you know, in gated communities, they're going to put lock boxes right outside the gate. And it's they're continually looking at this efficiency of how they make that that last mile cost go away. But um, But that's the big difference in terms of how items get to consumers. What are some of the pros for direct-to-consumer? So th those are some of the challenges that companies face as they're pivoting from brick-and-mortar to direct-to-consumer. What are some of the, the benefits and efficiencies that, that people gain? So there used to be a lot of efficiencies. When you look at the direct-to-consumer companies that started probably seven, eight, nine years ago, that was an amazing time to start a direct-to-consumer company. Um, not a lot of companies were in the digital marketing space. So you had a huge amount of marketing efficiency. And I, I want to talk about that because that's probably the biggest change over the last six months that's impacting direct-to-consumer companies. But you had a tremendous amount of marketing efficiency. You got full end-to-end -end control of your brand. You got a direct relationship with your consumer. That's still true, right? It's, I think every brand should have a direct-to-consumer presence because you get first-party insights. You're able to have direct contact with your consumers. Um, you know, I mean, any day that we want to, we can call a consumer and ask for feedback. Um, you know, you can email them directly, um, figure out what they're interested in. You just get a lot more first-party insights around who's buying your product. Um, again, so controlling the brand experience, 
direct first-party data um, relationships with your consumers that essentially allow you to make your brand better. In many cases, for instance, the Tuft & Needle, if we get feedback from a customer about something they like or didn't like about one of our products, we'll go change the product based on that. And it's very easy for us to do that. And we have those conversations every single week. It's like, oh, this is a problem with this cover. This is a problem with a zipper. This is a problem with this chair. We'll go fix it. Um, and so we are able to react much more quickly. Whereas if we were selling tr- through a retail location, we wouldn't necessarily get that feedback. The customer might, might complain to the retailer and not to us. Um, those, that has essentially, I think it's a very difficult time to start a direct to consumer company right now. It's a very difficult time to be a direct to consumer company right now. Um, one of the things that's impacting that the most is, um, is the, the change with the iOS 14.5 update that impacted privacy. So you can see now, Max, I was pulling data on this the other day because um, because it's just it's, this is the most fascinating news coverage that I'm covering right now, right? And, and trying to learn more because it's happening in real time is when Apple first announced that it was going to allow people to disable cookies and not be tracked across sites. We were like, okay, how many people are going to opt into that and how many aren't going to opt in? We didn't know at that point how it was going to impact the digital marketing efficiency, which is the biggest spend of most direct-to-consumer companies. Um, Once it hit a 70% adoption rate, you saw the tipping point happen where now your cost per clicks in some cases are double than the year before for a lot of companies. Um, they're, they're having to pay twice as much to get the same sale that they had before. And that's they're, just because they need to market to two, twice as many people because they don't have the cookie tracking like they did, yeah, they did earlier. Marketing became much less efficient. So when you look at direct-to-consumer companies, and I advise a lot of direct-to-consumer companies and I worked a lot in the past with them, they spend a, their biggest expense is marketing. So when you look at a company that's having to spend potentially, I'm you know, hundred million dollars versus fifty to get the same revenue, that's a pro, that's a big problem, right? And so what you're seeing now is Facebook and Google controlled eighty five percent of all ad dollars in the market, right? They're the masters of the universe. These companies in terms of of digital marketing. Now that they're becoming less efficient, you're seeing this change in where ad dollars are going. So Amazon's the biggest beneficiary of that, right? Because more people are like, okay, well, Amazon has just as much first-party data. Maybe their algorithms can help me better market to the consumer I want to serve. So you're seeing this huge disintermediation of advertising dollars across um, across the U.S. market. You're seeing direct-to-consumer companies that are not financially stable, that do not have a big brick-and-mortar presence in addition to their um, to their online presence really struggle. And um, and so over the next 12 to 18 months, if companies do not have enough cash that they're generating, I think it's going to be a huge. It's already a huge disruptor in the direct-to-consumer market. But there, quite honestly, won't be as many companies around op- operating direct-to-consumer. Still, the most profitable way for a brand to sell something is to sell it through a retailer. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of brands who said forever, "I'm never going to sell to a retailer." They're they're now like, "All right." Like Nordstrom sounds good, right? So, um, so you're seeing this out of desperation, brands having to make some very different choices or open their own brick and mortar stores um, in order to 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 hedge against what's happening from a digital marketing perspective. Two two trains of thought there. Number one, I've seen an up since since around the point you're talking about where iOS 14 came out. What month was that in? It was earlier this year, right? Earlier this spring, I think like, March ish, something yeah. like that. I've seen a dramatic uptick in the amount of direct. Uh, direct mail that I've gotten from from companies, which and I think is fascinating. Paper, and now there's a paper shortage. So I imagine. If you want to buy direct mail, you yeah. can't because there's no paper. So where stuff comes from, it's important for everything, <laughs> even marketing. And the even other piece, marketing. the other place where where stuff comes from is important. I mean, it, it applies to digital systems too. Like, where does your marketing come from? Um, I talk a lot about where do SaaS, where do SaaS products come from, software as a service. A lot of people don't realize hey, I'm running a SaaS company. I never have to worry about compute. But we're in a semiconductor shortage and companies like Microsoft over the past 18 months have had instances where they've they've tapered how much Azure space that companies are able to access if they hadn't pre-bought kind of options to access that space. So we have to rethink everything, even, even digital systems. And you know, if you're using advertising machine learning algorithms, where are you running those algorithms? All these types of things are converging and causing some substantial um, interesting problems. But what I found fascinating is you basically just described the commodity cycle, but for marketing spend, for direct-to-consumer brands, where 
at first things are really cheap. So you have a lot of capital flood into the market to kind of capitalize these brands. So then they start spending. So things get more expensive. They get more expensive to the point where no one wants to go spend money on this anymore. No one's spending money. So things start getting less expensive, less expensive. And then it's at zero again. So then it goes back up. People start investing and comes online and it's this, it's the commodity cycle. And it's very interesting to see that applied to, uh, to the digital world in addition to the physical world. No, that's exactly right. And that's what, you know, I, I can't wait to see what happens because I'm like, okay, 12 months from now, prices are either going to go down because we've gotten better at it, right? Or they're going to go down because there's fewer dollars in the market, right? Because people mm-hmm. are... So, um, so you're absolutely right. That's, that's what I'm waiting to see. How long? How long does it take for that to happen? So, And have, have you seen any differences between uh, direct-to-consumer versus B2B, band, B2B brands when it comes to direct-to-consumer? So I guess direct to end user versus direct to business consumer, if that makes sense. Uh, So say a company that sells industrial equipment to contractors versus a company that sells beds to, to people who are sleeping in them. Well, I think it's just what it goes back to the conversation that we had before is there's inflation everywhere. There's cost increases everywhere. Um, Where is the, where is the position of least amount of hurt right now? B2B definitely is in less of a place of hurt, even with inflation, than the direct-to-consumer businesses right now, I think. When I look across industries and I look across um, across channels, that's what I'm saying. So I think um, so I think when I compare the two, it's you're advantaged if you have you you're advantaged if you have multiple channels to which you sell, and you're advantaged if you have uh, B2B relationships with um, as a, as a brand. For sure. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Shelly. Thank you. I learned a ton. Is there... I have a new book to read now. Oh, I'm so happy. It's a fantastic book. I uh, it's I think it should be essential business reading for everyone who's suffering from supply chain stuff right now because it answers the question of, hey, why is, why did, where did this problems actually come from? Not in a direct way, in an indirect philosophical way. But regardless, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm very grateful thank for you. Thank you, I learned so much and this was wonderful. Thank you. Thanks, Max. Have a great day. You too. Thank you so much for listening to the Next Frontier podcast. If you'd like to dive deeper into our content, share our content, or subscribe to our newsletter to get our updates delivered directly to your inbox, go head on over to nextfrontierpodcast.com to subscribe.